My name is Roy Malloy and you are listening to The Dawn of Crime, a podcast dedicated to the faces, the places, the people and the criminals who have made contributions to Australia throughout its history and uh, offering biographies to some of those arguably dubious characters who should be remembered for their contributions to what we have become as a nation. This episode is dedicated to a man who was a he was many things. He was a convict, he was a criminal, a repeat offender at that, and he was also one of the most iconic hangmen in Australian history. Not the most prolific hangman, but certainly one that contributed something that perhaps others... If you were going to be a hangman, <laughs> um, I guess you could fairly say that this would be on your... Is there such thing as a, a wish list for a hangman? I mean, is that even a job that anybody wants in the first place? I don't know. <laughs> there, there are certainly famous... Um, dynastic families in Europe who for generations were hangmen. This guy, he, his family wasn't among them. But uh, his name was Elijah Upjohn. Now Elijah Upjohn was to become a hangman of Australia's most celebrated and notorious bushranger, Ned Kelly. In his life, Elijah Upjohn, his only real claim to fame, otherwise I, I guess I dare say he would have slipped into complete obscurity had it not been for a chance and fate meeting with a, a jail warder while he was in prison himself. But the story of, John Up, of Elijah Upjohn goes right back. It goes back uh, to 1834 where he was born on New Year's Day. He was uh, born in, uh, in England in a very, very impoverished part of what was then the Industrial Revolution that was happening all around them in Shaftesbury. Now, his first offence gives us our first snapshot of him. As a young boy, he was uh, born into a, a family with certainly a dad and a brother that we know of, and I, I explain why shortly, but uh, in his first criminal record, we see Elijah as an 11-year-old being 4 foot 10. Now, I've got an 11-year-old who's kind of edging towards 6 foot in my own family, in amongst our own children. We have an, a, a child the same age who's nearly two, a foot and a bit taller than this kid. So, I'm, look, I'm calling it two things. It's, it's the, the era for short people. The, uh, we know that people back then were, on average, shorter. We also know that he was incredibly poor, so malnutrition is going to be a big part of that. So in 1834, we find Elijah Upjohn, as an 11-year-old, um, being brought before the magistrate in Shaftesbury. Now, he's born in 1823 in Holy Trinity. Um, they lived through a turning point in Shaftesbury's history, these guys. Then, when the Industrial Revolution came, it took a whole city which was made up of small, pokey, mum and dad owned shops where they'd make, you know, if you're a bucket maker, and that was the thing, a bucket maker was a real thing. You'd shape each panel of the wood that made a circle like a barrel. You'd fashion the metal straps to go on the outside. You'd tighten them. You'd bolt them. Make a bucket. Maybe make three buckets a week. Four. But all of a sudden, when a machine can make 50 buckets a week with three people on a production line, it was a huge game changer. And this, found, this family found themselves in exactly that position, the Upjohn family. So the two choices were, in Shaftesbury at the time, was to either... M join a factory where they made buttons or a kind of coarse wool known as swan skin. Swan like the bird, swan skin. That's what Shaftesbury is known for, buttons and swan skin. They would have been terrible jobs. I mean, <laughs> there aren't the words to describe how horrific 
factory jobs in the Industrial Revolution would have been. But um, both Elijah and his brother found ways to fend for themselves, and arguably taught by their dad. Um, on the 8th of April, 1834, Elijah was caught stealing a pair of trousers. Now, <clears throat> it's hard to know if they were for himself or whether they were for him to sell, but trousers probably aren't the highest grade thing to steal, so they're possibly on, a, on someone's clothesline, not likely to be in a shop. These days, look, I've got to be honest, if somebody jumped my fence and nicked my trousers, I'd be perturbed, inconvenienced. I don't know if I'd want them jailed, even though they'd stolen my jeans, right? So, but he, he found himself in front of a mayor, who was the magistrate, a fellow called R. Buckland. Uh, Mr. Chitty was the justice of the peace in Shaftesbury, and they sentenced him between them to three months imprisonment at 11. Now, the horrors of Dickensian prison uh, go without saying. But, um, I mean, incomprehensible. But he was a seasoned survivor, and look, from a, an early age, being lobbed in Dorchester jail, where he ended up, uh, he was he was noted twice in that stay as being disorderly in his conduct. So he wasn't going to put his head down. He was a fighter. Um, he was a little kid, but he was also he'd been seasoned in a terrible part of the world to know how to survive. So three years later, he's released. Three years later, uh, he found himself again running foul of the law. He was sentenced to six weeks of hard labour. Now, hard labour is literally breaking stones. They're going to be used on train lines, on roads. They give you a great big granite boulder, and you'd break it 12 hours a day. That, that's what it is, hard labour. So he's now finding, what would that be, 11, 12, 13, 14, he's 14 or 15, and he finds himself in jail again, hard labour, for stealing rabbits. Now, it's not clear if they're rabbits that are stolen from out the front of a butcher's shop, or if he's killed them himself. And that also talks about whether he's poaching them, which is, if it's on crown land, is a crime, because it's property of, well, if it's on private land in general, it's a crime. But uh, it's not, sure, not clear if it's, um, you know, stealing to survive to eat or stealing to resell. But either way, he finds himself stealing rabbits and back in prison. And he's ordered to be whipped twice in that time. Uh, his pr the process for being whipped, it's most likely he was just had his hands lashed and tied over something above him where he could dangle uh, and he'd be whipped. That, that's that plainly and simply. Probably not a can of nine tails, probably more like a horse whip, but it could easily have been a piece of nine pieces of knotted rope. Um, either way, it was designed to really put the fear of God in him but it didn't seem to have a whole lot of effect. And we, you know, we, in modern days, we also find that corporal punishment does a little more than brutalise people, but it doesn't usually uh, result in them not doing it again. So he got it again when he was released, but he only a year, literally a year had passed. And we find a lot of the time with these criminals, they get out of jail, but there's just nothing for them. There's no jobs. They've got a stigma attached to them, particularly if they're released back into the town that they grew up in. People know who they are, and no one's giving them a job, especially if they were done for stealing. So they kind of flounder. They might beg. They might have family if they're very lucky. But even then, they're a burden on their family. And if they're a teenager, which he was, eating like my teenage children do, um, it would have been tough. So, again, he finds himself running foul of the law 
uh, yet again. He was brought before a judge uh, who more or less just said, you've run out of chances. He was 16 by this stage, and he was caught stealing shoes on this occasion. And again, not sure if it's to resell, but highly likely he's literally just looking to not have bare feet in winter in England. So it's, it's, um, look, it's a lose and lose position for this guy. So you've got a 16 year old who's brought before a judge and they sentence him to seven years deportation. So he's gonna be sent to Australia as a convict for seven years. Now he's got a family that he stays in contact with, with which is very unusual. It's highly unusual for someone in that day, that age, that generation to be sent to Australia and remain in contact with their family. I know that in my own personal family history, we had uh, two of my family, my forebears were sent to Australia, brothers, uh, John and James, and they were sent with a third boy for stealing uh, lead from a roof that they were gonna melt down and resell. And they were literally pulled from the arms of their parents in court and deported. That was the last day, I believe, as far as our family law goes, that was the last contact they ever had with their own families, uh, with their own family, uh, my family for that matter. Uh, and they were at the age of 11 and 13 when they were deported. So that, that's reasonably harsh. In this story, back to uh, Elijah Upjohn, Up, Up I've got to say that quickly, Elijah Upjohn. <laughs> he was put on the tall ship called the Marquis of Hastings. It uh, had 100 prisoners when it left uh, Woolwich in March of 1839, and it set sail then around to Portsmouth, uh, being another port where they also put prisoners on board ships, and 140 other prisoners piled on board. That's a total of 240 prisoners, and then the crew on top of that. It wasn't a terrible voyage as far as uh, prison ships went, because only seven people died. There, there are stories of prisoner ships that come to Australia and they have waves of death, particularly when, you know, they're just kept below deck all day, every day with their own uh, waste and horrors and sicknesses and they all just come down with every number of diseases that that causes. And you get a lot of situations where they, you know, huge waves of people die, but in this, this boat it wasn't terrible because only seven of them died. So they left Portsmouth on uh, 17th of March in 1839. Uh, again, to give you some context, um, that's about, that's within a decade of Melbourne being set up as a village. So that, that's when he comes to Melbourne, is not long after Melbourne in the 1830s is set up as a, as a village. He, do, he comes, sorry, he ends up in Tasmania, not Melbourne, but he, he's taken to Van Diemen's Land where most convicts were. And he's uh, dumped there where we just, we kind of lose track of him in a history, history kind of way. And we start to ask ourselves why, and probably just simply because nobody really keeps a lot of interest in prisoners. They're, they're thrown away to be forgotten. And seven years later, he's released. So he, he re-emerges then. Um, he would have been freed sometime around 1846, depending on whether he uh, had good behavior, bad behavior. The sentence was extended, who knows. But around 1846 at some point is probably when he was released. Um, and now we're heading towards only 10 years away from a gold rush in Victoria. So if he's uh, released in 1846, and Melbourne's, well, Ballarat's gold rush was 18, 1854, 1855 and 6, um, you know, he, that's kind of what the time and place we put him in. Uh, he showed up in Geelong 
not terribly within a year and a half he ends up in Geelong um, and, and here's the interesting uh, twist to this story uh, Upjohn has a brother called Robert and Robert shows up in Geelong not about the same time um, he was also deported and then lo and behold <laughs> their dad also deported and the three of them stay in contact once they're in Australia so that, that's a I'm not gonna say a nice twist but it's it's certainly it's unique and it's um gives an you know, idea of family for this guy but he even after you know being released with I, I guess far more opportunities here as a post-prison convict he he doesn't ever seem to go towards he stays a crook. He's, he, the life of crookery is for Elijah Upjohn. <laughs> and so he's in Victoria and he, he just keeps reoffending. Um, he was always one of those guys uh, who just. Stealing was his, his, uh, you know, his crime of choice. But he ends up in prison and he's, he's back in the old Melbourne jail. And he was looking for a job. When he, when he was released. Um, and he ends up back in jail again, and then he's, he's in prison, and they call the prisoners to muster. So that means they're all asked to step out, come outside your cells, and then they line them up. And as they're standing there, the prison warden walks along this line of prisoners, and he's looking them up and down. He walks back, and he looks them up and down again, and he says, I'm looking for a man to do a job. Now, Usually that'd be a pretty terrible, um, whatever's going to come next out of his mouth, that job's not going to be fun, it's not going to be good. So the, you know, the, I, I guess all the prisoners were standing there going, yeah, not for me. But Upjohn steps forward and he says, I, I would like to volunteer to do the job, sir. His motive, he later said his motive was that he believed that it would give him, whatever the job was, it would give him extra privileges. Now, this also talks a little bit about his knowledge of the system. Um, he's been in jail long enough to know that if he wants luxuries, he's got to earn them, and this is how you do it. So he's, he's seen probably similar situations where they say, we want somebody to um, scrape out the, the latrines, we want somebody, you know, all these terrible jobs, and he's like, oh, you know, it won't kill me. In this instance, it will kill someone else, though. The job is to be the hangman. And so Elijah ends up, without realising uh, what he's put himself up to, he, he signed up to be the hangman. So, he's, uh, he steps forward, he's given this job, and then, early in the morning of the 11th of November, 1880, Upjohn becomes remembered in history for something far bigger than he could ever have imagined. By this stage, he's looking a little, uh, I don't want to say elderly, he's looking, he's greying, but he's, he's certainly fit. He's described as fit-looking, but he's, he's now no, no longer looking like a spring chicken. He's an older-looking man. And he, but he looked more... One of the newspapers says he looks suited to his occupation. So this is the hangman who's going to do something notorious. Um, and the governor, the priests, they all gather in the lobby of the old Melbourne jail where also Upjohn is also a prisoner. And with all the local dignitaries, they walk up to the second floor. I think it's the second floor. I could be wrong. And that's when he meets Ned Kelly, the Bush Ranger. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not in Australia, please Google Ned Kelly. Um, I was at the old Melbourne jail. That's this exact jail where this scene takes place. And it's open now as a tourist attraction. 
I was there in, I reckon this story is 1990. And I was a tourist and I was, you know, walking through and I was looking at some of the bits and pieces that you know, pertain to things I already knew about. And I was behind an American tourist, or a couple actually, a man and a woman. They were in their 50s, 60s. And they were with one of the staff from the old Melbourne jail. And she said to him in her broad American accent, she said, so let me get this straight. Your Billy the Kid was called Ned Wirt. <laughs> and it was the greatest thing I think I've ever heard. <laughs> to this day, I don't forget that Ned Kelly was our Billy the Kid and his name was Ned Wirt. <laughs> but here we are at the old Melbourne jail. In the old Melbourne jail, there's a recessed kind of, um, as you walk along these long uh, rows of cells, it kind of cuts left and then you've got a, a door, which is the condemned man's cell. It's where you'd be put the night before or days before your execution. And as you'd walk out of that cell, you're looking directly at the noose and the trapdoor, and it's, it's directly in front of you. I believe it's, look, I think it's one floor off the ground floor, which then means that everybody watching it is on the ground floor. And when you drop, you drop to kind of halfway down to the ground floor through that trapdoor, if that makes sense. Um, and so Upjohn walks in. Uh, there's no record as to what he said or if he said anything to Ned. No record as to, you know, if they had any conversations. We do know that Ned Kelly resisted having his elbows tied behind his back, which was common. They'd um, be allowed to have their hands freely by their sides, but not, uh, not have access to their hands. So, so if, if he did have something to do with Ned, he may well have been the guy who tied Ned Kelly's hands, uh, his elbows behind his back. Now, Ned was also still suffering a huge amount of physical trauma from being shot a huge amount of times in the last stand at Glen Rowan, where his brother died. Um, he was shot enough times by police that it brought him down in the gaps between his armour. Um, but as he trudged towards the gallows, uh, John Upjohn, uh, Elijah Upjohn, I beg my pardon, Elijah Upjohn walked him to the gallows along with every other person that could possibly get around that at the time. It's a pretty macabre scene. It was almost entertainment in some ways to some people, but there was a huge, huge amount of um, disparity in the community and society at large. There were protests out on the street, um, out in the forecourt in Russell Street, Leading up to the the execution, there were huge amounts of people didn't want to see Ned Kelly hung. Um, it created a, a lot of problems and a, a lot of outcry for society, as well as those who thought that you know he was a police killer and um, and, and a bush ranger and an outlaw. But Upjohn became the man who got to say, "I hung Ned Kelly." After being released, Upjohn continued in his new career as a public hangman. Uh, being brought back into the jails, and there were a couple of them. Pentridge was, had, had been opened, and um, Old Melbourne Jail was still hanging people. Um, within five minutes or so of the drop, it's worth mentioning, um, Ned Kelly didn't die from a broken neck. Ned Kelly suffocated being hung, literally, and strangled to death at the end of the, the, the rope. So, yes, it was a success in that Ned died, but as we move forward out of, out of that... John was released and kept being a hangman. He wasn't that successful. In fact, he botched uh, almost every other 
hanging that he ever participated in. After the first one of the botched hangings, he starts showing up to the hangings uh, drunk, nervous, uh, not showing up, and they have to go and get him in, in some instances. But he just, he loses his nerve bit by bit, but then the public realise that he's the hangman, and they turn on him. Anybody who's had a relative hung by this guy, he becomes uh, their target. And look, I, I kind of get that. I see the theory there. And so Upjohn ends up uh, being... Uh, victimized in public so much that he, he has nowhere to go nowhere to run any it was a small town or city at that stage but it, it people found it easy to find you so he ended up moving into Coburg into Pentridge prison in Coburg they set him up with a little suite there and he lived there and he lived there to be protected from the victimization of people that wanted to belt the hangman um, which is also just absolutely extraordinary so he was arrested again and again in that period he kept getting drunk uh, he was arrested for drunk and disorderly, uh, for having no visible means of su uh, supporting himself, but also indecent exposure when he was uh, urinating. Um, but he he did try in this time. Other than being a hangman, he for the only time I've been able to I've been able to see, he seems to try and come good a little bit, and he becomes a night soilman. Let me explain what a night soilman is. A night soilman is the guy with a horse and uh, a truck, we'll call it like a wagon that's covered, and it's got a tank on the back. Before plumbing was really a, th a going concern at the beginning of the 20th century, most houses had an, an outhouse, which is like a, you know, a freestanding hut where your toilet was. And we had a thunderbox, that's where you, you do your business, it goes into a hole, it's caught in a bucket. And the night, night soilman would go to every house every day, every couple of days, and collect all the night soil. It's a nice way of saying human waste, night soil. And they'd take it out to the treatment plant you know, in the back of this horse and carriage. So his job was also, the only job he's ever really had was an awful, terrible job being a night soilman. But that was his job. At the end of his own, uh, by the time he was a night soilman, he was, look, he was aged, he'd had a tough life, he'd drunk extremely heavily. Um, and then we kind of lose track of him until he's found uh, in Burke, in New South Wales. Burke is honest to God in the middle of nowhere, like even and more so in that day. It's one of the most remote uh, towns in in the whole country. And uh, he's found in, in Burke, in New South Wales, by a constable. Uh, he was frail. He was sick. And he was camping in in what's called a lean-to, and that's literally just a bit of I don't know whether he used corrugated iron or iron of any kind or even wood it's just a piece of something fabricated probably leaning up against a tree he was frail um it was only two days after he was found that he, he was pronounced dead uh and it, look it could have been exposure dehydration let's call it malnutrition any number of things could have killed him but let's just put it down to an extremely hard life and hard living um in the newspaper it says up john was a public hangman and died at about the age of 70 years old, where in fact he was only 62. So he looked terrible for his age as well. I've been in touch uh, with one of the surviving family of John Upjohn, uh, of Elijah Upjohn, and he had children, and um, they have lineage that survives to this day. I, I've had them be in touch with me through my author page on Facebook, Roy Malloy Author, um, and they have you know, their, their own collection of stories. None of them really add a whole lot more detail to this uh, this piece than exactly what we've said. 
Only to add that um, one of the ladies who got in touch with me, her father passed away a short time ago. And she sent me a photo and said, but you got to look at him. And I looked at the photo of her father. And I tell you what, he is the spitting image of Elijah Upjohn. It's spooky. I put a photo of that on my, um, my author page, which again is Roy Malloy Author on Facebook. Uh, and uh, also alongside the photo of actually Elijah Upjohn. So this has been one of the many stories that I've tried to work on to try and preserve somewhat the story of Elijah Upjohn. And um, I hope it's something you've enjoyed. It's also one of the stories that appears in my first book by the same title as this podcast, uh, The Dawn of Crime. There are two books in the series at this point in time. And uh, as I upload this in late July 2020, COVID time, uh, it's a book you might want to try and get. They're available on the internet. And I'll be releasing another one of them in short time as well. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Please share it. Give it a thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel. And uh, check out my Facebook page, Roy Malloy Author.